Chapter 5, Part 2 of U.S. Marine Operations in Korea, 1950-1953, Volume 2, The Inchon Seoul Operation, by Lynn Montross and Nicholas Canzona. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Embarkation and Assault Air and Naval Bombardments The softening up of Walmido had begun on 10 September, when the Marine Flyers of TG-95.5 made napalm attacks designed to burn off the trees screening NKPA artillery. Six planes of VMF-323 and eight planes of VMF-214 took off from the CVEs at 0600 and scorched the eastern side of the island. The next flight of 14 planes found it necessary to orbit for a few minutes until the smoke cleared sufficiently for them to continue the work of destruction. Lieutenant Clark's reports had led G-2 officers to believe that enemy defensive installations on Walmido were more formidable than had at first been supposed. As if in support of this conclusion, the Marine Flyers of the Second Strike were greeted with small-caliber anti-aircraft fire, both from the island and mainland. A third attack, launched from the decks of the Sicily and the Bedong Strait shortly before noon, left the humpbacked island in flames from one shore to another. After the CVEs returned to Sasebo for replenishment the next day, the carrier-based Navy planes of TF-77 worked over both Walmido and Incheon on 12 and 13 September. It was now the turn of the destroyers, and Admiral Higgins had planned a bold venture. Instead of risking collision or grounding in a night approach, he decided to forego the advantages of surprise and attack in broad daylight. And instead of avoiding NKPA fire, he intended to goad the enemy into retaliations which would reveal the positions of NKPA guns on Walmido. The hazards of the operation were increased by the fact that a rock PC boat had discovered an NKPA craft laying mines on the morning of the 10th. This confirmed Admiral Struble's opinion that the Inchon area offered the enemy excellent opportunities for this form of warfare. Not only would the muddy waters make detection difficult, but crippled ships would block the narrow channel. It was not a pleasant prospect. And the outlook became darker on the morning of 13 September when four mines were spotted in Flying Fish Channel. The U.S. cruisers Toledo and Rochester and the British cruisers Kenya and Jamaica had dropped off in support as the six destroyers carried out their mission. Pausing only to detonate the mines with 40mm rounds, the cans moved up within 800 yards of Walmido to fire down the enemy's throat while the four cruisers poured in 6- and 8-inch salvos and the planes of TF-77 made bombing runs. It had been long since the Navy issued the historic order, prepare to repel borders, but Admiral Higgins did not overlook the possibility of NKPA infantry swarming out over the mudflats to attack a disabled and grounded destroyer. And though he did not issue pikes and cutlasses, the crews of the Gurky, Henderson, Swanson, Collette, De Haven, and Mansfield were armed with grenades and tommy guns for action at close quarters. The enemy endured half an hour of punishment before obliging Higgins by opening up with the shore guns of Walmido. The Gurky and De Haven took hits, and five NKPA shells found the Colette. The total damage was insignificant, however, and the casualties amounted to one man killed and eight wounded. 
These results cost the enemy dearly when the cruisers and destroyers silenced the NKPA guns shortly after they revealed their positions. On the return trip, the destroyers found eight more mines and exploded them. This proved to be all, for the enemy had neglected an opportunity to make the waters around Inchon dangerous for the attack force. The next morning, when the destroyers paid another visit to Walmido, the shore guns appeared to have been effectually silenced. The DDs fired more than 1,705 inch shells and drew only a few scattered shots in reply. Meanwhile, the Marine planes of VMFs 214 and 323, having returned from Sasebo, cooperated by spotting for the cruisers and launching napalm strikes before and after the bombardment. On the evening of 14 September, after five days of continual pounding, Walmido was a blasted piece of real estate as the Marines of 3-5 prepared to hit Green Beach in the morning. Marine Landings on Green Beach The pre-dawn stillness of the Yellow Sea was shattered as the Corsairs of VMFs 214 and 323 flashed up from the decks of the Sicily and the Badong Strait. To the west, the planes of Task Force 77 were assembled in attack formations above the Valley Forge, Philippine Sea, and Boxer. Squadron after squadron droned eastward through the blackness, and the first aircraft began orbiting over the objective area at 0454. Two hours earlier, Advanced Attack Group 90.1, under Captain Norman W. Sears, U.S. Navy, had glided into the entrance of Flying Fish Channel. Led by the Mansfield, the column of 19 ships snaked through the treacherous passage while captains and navigators sweated over radar scopes. Lieutenant Clark's handiwork provided a welcome relief midway along the route when the glimmering beacon of Palmido guided the vessels past one of the more dangerous points in the channel. Minutes after aircraft cover began to form over Inchon, the ships eased into the narrows west of Walmido and saw assigned battle stations. Training their big guns on the port city were the cruisers Toledo, Rochester, Kenya, and Jamaica, comprising one of the three fire support units under Admiral Higgins. Other support vessels scattered throughout the waters of the objective area were the destroyers Collette, Gurkey, Henderson, Mansfield, De Haven, Swenson, and Sutherland, and this array of firepower was further supplemented by the three bristling rocket ships, LSMRs 401, 403, and 404. The control ship, Mount McKinley, its flag bridge crowded with star-studded commanders, steamed into the narrows just before dawn. No sooner had the gray shoreline become outlined in the morning haze than the 6- and 8-inch guns of the cruisers belched sheets of orange flame in the direction of Inchon, and at 0545, the initial explosions rocked the city and reverberated throughout the channel. There was a deafening crescendo as the destroyers hammered Walmido with their 5-inch guns. Radio Hill, its seaward side already burnt and blackened from previous bombardments, was almost hidden by smoke when Marine planes streaked down at 0600 to smother the island with tons of rockets and bombs. Captain Sears, reporting to the Mount McKinley, confirmed L hour at 0630. To this end, Lieutenant Colonel Robert D. Taplett's landing force was boated by 0600, and the LCVPs and LSUs rendezvoused while Marine Air continued to soften up the target. 
Air attacks ceased at 0615, but Walmido enjoyed only a momentary respite before the most unnerving blow of all. In strange contrast to the sleek men-o'-war and nimble aircraft, three squat LSMRs closed on the island from the north, a few hundred yards offshore. Phalanxes of rockets arose from the decks of the clumsy ships, arched steeply, and crashed down. One of the rocket ships, taking a southerly course, passed Green Beach and dumped salvo after salvo along the slopes and crest of Radio Hill. When the LSMR cleared north point of Walmido, seven LCVPs darted across the line of departure and sped shoreward with 3-5's first wave. Rockets and 40mm shells were still ripping the southern half of the island when one platoon of Company G and three platoons of Company H stormed Green Beach at 0633. Two minutes later, the second wave of landing craft ground to a halt on the sand, bringing the remainder of both assault companies. The Marines were confronted by a scene of devastation almost devoid of enemy resistance. Only a few scattered shots greeted the assault force as it punched inland. The failure of UDT men to clear away all of the wrecked small craft cluttering the beach had left 3-5 a landing strip less than 50 yards wide. Consequently, each wave had to contract like an accordion, and there was considerable crowding during the first crucial minutes of the landing. But even at this stage, the potent Marine air arm offered a final measure of protection to the infantrymen splashing ashore. Pilots swung their F-4Us 50 yards ahead of the assault troops and hosed the routes of advance with machine gun bullets. After a brief pause for reorganization at the beach, First Lieutenant Robert D. Bones Company G wheeled to the right and drove up the northern slopes of Radio Hill, Objective 1A. Only half-hearted resistance was met along the way. Most of the scattered and numb North Koreans preferred to surrender rather than face the inevitable. At 0655, Sergeant Alvin E. Smith, guide of the 3rd Platoon, secured the American flag to a shell-torn tree on the crest. At this point, General MacArthur rose from the swivel chair in which he had been viewing the operation on the flag bridge of the Mount McKinley. That's it, he said. Let's get a cup of coffee. Meanwhile, the Walmido assault continued as Captain Patrick E. Wildman, after detaching a small force from Company H to clear rubble-strewn North Point, attacked across Walmido toward the Inchon Causeway with the rest of his unit. Howe Company's mission was to seize Objective 2B, which included the eastern nose of Radio Hill and the shoreline industrial area facing Inchon. At 0646, the three LSUs comprising the third wave squeezed into the narrow beach and disgorged the armored detachment of Company A, 1st Tank Battalion, under 2nd Lieutenant Granville G. Sweet. Ten tanks were landed in all, six M26s, one flamethrower, two dozers, and one retriever. The big vehicles crunched inland a short distance to await calls from the infantry. Lieutenant Colonel Taplett ordered his free boat to the beach at 0650. Fifteen minutes later, he radioed the Mount McKinley and Fort Marion that his assault companies were advancing on schedule. It was ironic that 3-5's reserve company should encounter the angriest hornet's nest on Walmido. Landing in the fourth wave at 0659, Captain Robert A. McMullen's Company I moved through North Point in trace of the Howe Company detachment which supposedly had cleared the area. 
Suddenly a flurry of hand grenades clattered on the rubble and the surprised Marines scattered for cover. Regaining their composure after the explosions, the infantrymen determined the source of trouble to be a bypass string of enemy emplacements dug into a low cliff at the shoreline facing Inchon. There appeared to be about a platoon of North Koreans who would rise from their holes intermittently, fling grenades inland, then disappear from sight. Item Company's interpreter crawled toward the cliff during a lull, bellowing to the Reds that their predicament was hopeless and exhorting them to surrender. When the Communists responded to this advice by throwing more grenades, McMullen signaled Sweet's tanks into action. The M26s and Marine riflemen took covering positions, while the dozer tank directed by McMullen himself rumbled into the troublesome pocket and systematically sealed the diehard Reds in their holes. Another bit of drama unfolded before the reserve troops when they closed down the causeway terminus in the wake of Howe Company's advance. From one of many caves drifted noises indicating the presence of several occupants, hitherto unnoticed. When riflemen covered the entrance, a marine tank drove forward and fired two rounds into the interior. Muffled explosions shook the area, and billows of black smoke streaked with flame rolled out of the cave. Wide-eyed, as though watching ghosts emerge, the Marines of Company I saw 30 enemy soldiers stagger out of the blazing recess and throw up their hands. Less than an hour after landing, 3-5 controlled half of Walmido. Company H, having cleared the causeway terminus, was pivoting southward to clean out the ruins of the industrial area. Engineers, close on the heels of the infantry, advanced 25 yards out on the pavement leading to Inchon and laid an anti-tank minefield. George Company had advanced about 400 yards and was clearing the northern crest of Radio Hill. Action up to this point is best summed up in Taplet's message to the Mount McKinley at 0745. Captured 45 prisoners, meeting light resistance. Nor did the situation change as Company G occupied the dominating peak of Radio Hill some 105 meters high. The enemy lacked the will to fight, despite the fact that he had sufficient weapons and a formidable defensive complex from which to fire them. Frightened, dejected Red soldiers continued to surrender singly or in small groups, and Taplet exulted over the amazingly light casualties sustained by his battalion. Since Company H found the going slow in the shambles of the industrial area, the battalion commander ordered Lieutenant Bone to seize the whole of Radio Hill. Accordingly, George Company troops rushed across the ridgeline to the eastern spur. This done, Bone dispatched a force to clear the western reaches of the high ground. By 0800, Radio Hill became the property of the 1st Marine Division, and with the prize went control of the island and Inchon Harbor. When the news of 3-5 success blared from the loudspeaker on the flag bridge of the Mount McKinley, the commander-in-chief, wearing his famous leather jacket and braided campaign cap, withdrew to his cabin and penned a spirited message to Vice Admiral Struble aboard the Rochester. The Navy and Marines have never shown more brightly than this morning. MacArthur Consolidation of Walmido required the reduction of an enemy outpost on Sol Walmido, the small lighthouse station connected to the southwestern tip of the island by a causeway 750 yards long and 12 yards wide. An islet of about 500 square yards, 
Solwamido was topped by a low hill with the navigational beacon on the summit. Before bothering with this tiny, isolated target, Taplet put his larger house in order. By previous plan, the three rifle companies of 3-5 took up defensive positions generally facing Inchon. Item Company occupied North Point, Wildman's unit the slopes above the industrial area, and Company G the crest of Radio Hill. While the battalion dug in, mopping up operations throughout the island continued to net more prisoners and reveal the extent of North Korean fortifications. Radio Hill was ringed by mutually supporting trenches and emplacements, all of which had brought only a negligible return to the Reds' investment in time and labor. Parked on the western nose of the ridge were two intact 76mm anti-tank guns that could have wrought havoc on landing waves approaching Green Beach. Fortunately, these weapons had been exposed to the 40mm fire of the LSMR covering the beach assault, and their crews had lacked the stomach to man them. More anti-tank guns were scattered around the terminus of the causeway leading to Inchon, leaving some question as to whether they had been rushed to the defense of the island or were marked for displacement to the city. North Point, once a luxurious resort, was honeycombed with caves used both for storage and for bomb shelters. The swimming pool, one of the few structures still recognizable after the bombardment, was converted by the Marines into a prisoner of war stockade. More than 300 cast-iron anti-personnel mines were found attached to the barbed wire entanglement stretched along the west coast of the base of Radio Hill. The explosives were removed and disarmed by Technical Sergeant Edward L. Knox and his detachment from Company A, 1st Engineer Battalion. Though the North Koreans had been helpful in placing these mines in so obvious a location, they had, oddly enough, failed to employ similar obstacles on the beaches, roads, and paths around the island. Prior to the mid-morning advance on Solwamido, total casualties for the 3rd Battalion were 14 wounded, an incredibly small price for a critical terrain feature commanding the approaches to Korea's major west coast port. Evacuation plans so carefully laid out by the 1st Medical Battalion worked smoothly. In the early phase of the operation, LCVPs returning from Green Beach delivered Marine casualties to the Fort Marion, whose normal medical complement had been augmented by a special surgical team. Men with particularly bad wounds were transferred to the Mount McKinley after being administered first aid. As the battle developed, Navy Medical Corpsmen of 3-5 established a collecting point on a small pier which could be reached by ambulance boats even during low water. Shortly before 10:00, Taplet ordered Company G to see Sol Walmido. Bone in turn assigned the mission to one infantry squad reinforced with machine guns and a section of tanks, all under the control of 2nd Lieutenant John D. Councilman, leader of George Company's 3rd Platoon. Although the islet was by no means an objective of formidable proportions, the attackers eyed their route of approach over the long strip with misgivings. Their skepticism was not unfounded, for they neared the entrance of the causeway only to be stopped cold by heavy rifle and machine gun fire from the other end. A platoon of North Koreans, almost literally at the end of a rope, preferred to fight it out. Taplet ordered the tank infantry team to hold up while he radioed a mission to Marine Air. A few minutes later, Corsairs of VMF-214 nosed down and scorched the objective with napalm. 
Sweet's tanks, preceded by an engineer mine clearance team and followed by the column of infantrymen, rumbled onto the rock bed tracing the seaward edge of the causeway. As the task force filed across the exposed route, 81 millimeter shells from 3.5's mortar platoon rattled overhead and tore into the communist emplacements. Enemy fire was reduced to a light patter, and the observers on Radio Hill breathed a sigh of relief when the attackers gained the far end of the causeway at 10.48. Covered by tank fire, the Marine infantry quickly fanned out and closed with the defenders. There was a sharp outburst of small arms racket, interspersed with the clatter of machine guns, then a few scattered volleys and the main fight was over at 11.15. Mopping up with grenades and a flamethrower continued for almost another hour, owing to the number of caves and the determination of a few red soldiers. Nineteen North Koreans surrendered and seventeen were killed, including some hapless warriors who tried to swim to the mainland. Despite the size of the islet, eight reds succeeded in hiding out from the attackers, and General Craig, after landing on Walmido with the ADC group in the evening, observed the fugitives escape to the mainland. The Two Harbor Islands Secured Three Marines were wounded on Seoul Walmido, bringing three fives total casualties for the day to 17 WIA. In return, Taplet's battalion could count 136 prisoners and 108 enemy dead. Since interrogation of captives established the original number of Red Defenders at 400, it could be concluded that some 150 more Communist fatalities lay entombed in sealed emplacements and caves throughout the island. The Walmido garrison was part of a 2,000-man force committed to the defense of Incheon by NKPA headquarters in Seoul. Represented were elements of the 226th Marine Regiment, to which two companies of the 2nd Battalion, 918th Coast Artillery Regiment were attached with their Soviet-manufactured 76mm guns. The spiritless resistance encountered by 3-5 was the natural reaction of green troops to the awesome power of modern combined arms, for the North Korean Marines and their artillerymen were largely recent conscripts with sketchy training and no experience. It remained to be seen how the other 1,600 Red troops would respond to the latter assaults on Red and Blue beaches. Mopping up operations on the island were completed by noon, and with the support ship standing silent in the Narrows, an oppressive quiet settled on the objective area. Gradually, the phenomenal tide rolled back from its morning high of more than 30 feet. By 1300, the waters had receded, leaving 3-5 perched on an island in a sea of mud. For the next several hours, Taplin and his men were on their own, speculating whether an enemy force might suddenly rush out of Inchon's dead streets in an attempt to cross the mudflats, or whether a red tank column would abruptly streak from the city and make for the causeway. Nothing happened. The air of unreality caused by the stillness of the Oriental seaport weighed down on the nerves of the entire attack force. As the afternoon wore on, the Marines detected movement here and there, but the distant figures were identified as civilians more often than not. Captain McMullen, studying the Red Beach area from his OP on North Point, reported possible enemy field pieces on Cemetery Hill. What he actually cited were the tubes of the mortar company of the 226th NK Marine Regiment, as will be shown later. At Taplet's OP on Radio Hill, the Shorefire Control Party officer, 2nd Lieutenant Joseph R. Wojerski, 
searched Inchon intently through his binoculars. On one occasion, he called down naval gunfire on small groups of people stirring in the inner tidal basin area to his right front, but when further observation revealed the figures to be civilians raiding a pile of rice, the Marine officer promptly canceled the mission. Wierski's lone tactical target of importance was a section of trench on Observatory Hill in which he once spotted about 20 enemy soldiers on the move. He smothered the earthworks with 35-inch shells from the Mansfield, and what North Koreans remain shows other avenues from that point on. Taplet and others of his headquarters picked out enemy gun emplacements right at the waterfront near the Inchon Dry Dock. After the report went out to the Mount McKinley, red pencils throughout the task force circled the locale on maps for special attention during the pre-H-hour bombardment. Thus, the 3rd Battalion enjoyed an almost uneventful interlude during its isolation. An occasional mortar round or long-range machine gun burst was the feeble reminder that Inchon still remained in enemy hands. While the infantry lulled in relative ease and safety, service and support elements, attached to 3-5 for the landing, set the stage at Green Beach for the logistical follow-up so vital to amphibious operations. First Lieutenant Melvin K. Green's team from Shore Party Group A, having unloaded its LSUs in record time, established dumps for ammunition, rations, and other field necessities. Personnel of the Ordnance Battalion, Combat Service Group, and Service Battalion engaged in backbreaking toil to alleviate the headaches of a harried beachmaster. Signalmen scurried about, setting up their equipment and creating the familiar maze of wire. The reconnaissance detachment of the 11th Marines probed around the island's desolation in search of battery positions for the howitzers scheduled to roll ashore on the evening tide. The narrow strip of sand on North Point would have appeared crowded and hopelessly confused to the inexperienced eye, but old hands knew that order would gradually emerge, as if by magic, from the early rush hour, that necessary evil inherent in all assault landings. End of chapter 5, part 2, read by Aaron Bennett.